This morning, I want to ask you a question. And uh, I was kind of reminded of this as I was hearing Kara share her testimony. Um, you know, it's one of the, 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 the sweet things that as a parent, you know, to hear uh, your child, and she's no longer a child, obviously, but she, she's still my child. And um, uh, that's the greatest thing you could ever hear. You know, is that on, of their own will and of their own volition, they would choose to love and follow Jesus. And everything flows out of that. And, and one of the basic things that you think about is um, you came here this morning on a Sunday because we say we have church. And for many people, you know, we've grown up going to church, so it's not something you really have to think about much you just kind of it's like almost like default uh, Sunday is church but sometimes in thinking that way does it really actually matter that I go to church or do I just kind of go through the motions what if I were to tell you today was your last Sunday service ever because you would die now, if you're a Christian, to die is not a bad thing. Uh, you get to go to heaven. I think that's a pretty good deal. Um, no more sin, no more suffering. Uh, but at the same time, when we think of life here on this earth, for however many years God would give us, uh, and for how many Sundays we are given, does it matter to us? Do we consider the precious opportunities that are given each time we gather together as a corporate body? Now, for sure, there are challenges. I mean, being sick is one of them. But then the busyness of life, there are various seasons where there are challenges. And so Sundays actually are uh, a battleground, especially in our heart. Is it something that not only am I willing to do, but am I purposefully and very deliberately preparing and planning that I'm going to gather together with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for corporate worship? Uh, now, this morning as I was driving here to church and um, you know, driving from uh, Canada every Sunday is uh, challenging it's not Canada, but it's, you know, north. And uh, it's a bit of a drive, but it gives opportunity to think. And I thought, you know, how about me? I mean, I've been doing this for quite a while. It's not just church, obviously. It's as a pastor, and I'm preaching and leading and doing all the things that pastors are supposed to do. Uh, but do I treat it as sort of a, a, a rote activity as well? You know, it's just part of the job. It's just what you do. How important is it actually to gather together as a church family on a given Sunday? Now, for any of you who've played competitive sports, team sports, uh, you'll know that part of sports, there are some really basic and foundational elements. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, football, and, and I do have to qualify American football, you know, Vashek, you know, my, my very sweet son-in-law, if you say football to him, that means soccer, because that's what the rest of the world actually calls football. And logically, actually, it makes sense, because they actually hit the ball with their foot. Uh, American football, they do that sometimes. But I had the opportunity to play one year in high school, and uh, I was so happy, because uh, my parents finally let me play my senior year. Uh, and then I promptly got hurt after the fourth game and never got to play again. But uh, there are some basic things I learned uh, in football. One is there's a football. And it's important that you understand there's a football. There are elements of things what you wear. Right? You gotta wear cleats, you gotta wear pads. Uh, you especially have to wear a helmet. Uh, I think that was one of the most terrifying things. Uh, I was on the kickoff team and I was the contain guy. I used to be lean and fast. Now I'm the opposite, uh, but I remember running, and 
anticipating the clash, the hit. And uh, it's scary, but you're sure glad you have that helmet. You can think you become proficient at a sport, but you always have to remember there are basics. You know, even when you watch the NFL, the best of the best, uh, I played wide receiver, and the basic, you know, basic rule is keep your eye on the ball. As the ball is coming, you keep your eye on the ball and you watch it in until you see the little bumpy things on the ball. You bring it in. Professional wide receivers will take their eyes off the ball, and that's why you see them not catch it or they drop it. Now, one other element of team sports is that you might have a few superstars on your team, but if you don't have a full team, you're going to get destroyed. In football, there are 11 people on the field, 11 on offense, 11 on defense. It's 11 on 11. Imagine taking two or three out of one side. What would happen? Well, the the other team's going to destroy you because you can't compete without a full team. In fact, imagine if 25% of your team was regularly not playing every week. I mean, there's no way you'd be able to compete. In hockey, and I'm not a big hockey fan, but they actually have uh, something called a penalty box, right? So if you commit a penalty, you might get... Uh, put into that box, and the other team has what they call a power play because now they have an advantage. Uh, Besides the goalie, it would be five on four. Sometimes two team members get a penalty. So it could be five on three. Now, if anyone understands team dynamics, it's almost impossible to sustain competing with those kind of numbers. Now, I use that athletic imagery, and, um, you know, for some people who aren't into athletics, uh, you know, I'm not the first one to use athletic imagery. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul refers to athletics uh, in his epistles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24, do you not know that those who run a race all win, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And even... In his last letter, 2 Timothy 4, 7, he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. faith." Now, I wanted to bring your attention to that sort of idea is because maybe when we go to church, and for some of you, you've attended church for like 100 years, or it might feel like that. You've been to church all your life. Maybe some of you have not. Maybe some of you have had bad experience at churches, so that colors how you view coming to church on any given Sunday. But you might want to ask yourselves, if you get past all the excuses, are you simply acting with a victim mentality where you have a self-inflicted mentality that treats church not according to Scripture and what God calls you to do, but you treat church in light of your feelings and experiences. Those tend to be negative. Now, I I am just as much uh, um, able to say that I struggle with that too, because I've had bad experiences Uh, There are some Sundays that uh, I am not too thrilled looking forward to coming to church. But one of the biggest challenges is, do I understand that in coming together as a church family, there is this element of the corporate nature of the church that I am called to be a part of? Now, as believers, yes, we are individually members of the body of Christ, our testimony or our coming to Christ is not uh, dependent on someone's, um, someone else's testimony necessarily. I need to respond to Jesus directly, not because of my parents, not because of my family, not because of friends. So I individually belong to Christ 
But what you can't do is separate that from the fact that you are called to be part of this body. The scriptures use this phrase, the body of Christ. Now, Christ is the head of the church. That's why it's the body of Christ. It belongs to him. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says this, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now, there's a very simple way of looking at this. If you focus on Christ, that is what's going to help you understand this idea of oneness of the body because your eyes are focused on Christ because Christ is the one that defines the body. We do not define the oneness of the body. We are individual members, but if I were to be separated from the body, just like your physical body, if you had an individual part of your body, say like your pinky finger, and you decided to like chop it off and just let it lay there, what do you think would happen to that pinky? It would die. It needs to be attached to the body, or else it won't be able to function. Now, when you think about the church as a body, and it actually uses the term members, though not necessarily like a membership class member, but when you think about the idea of are we actually members of the body of Christ, the analogy in 1 Corinthians 12, turn there, uh, helps us see this in a very real way. Roman, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For also by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one body. For also the body is not one member, but many. And then Paul uses this illustration. And if you can imagine the illustration, uh, maybe sort of a, in a, um, I don't know, cartoon way, you know, when you watch cartoons and they kind of are able to do things that are not necessarily doable uh, in reality. Imagine your foot, okay? So I'm going to try to do this. <clears throat> so your foot, I cramped last night, so it's hard to move, but if my foot were to say to my hand, okay, so there's my foot, and the foot's like, I'm not a hand, to the hand. Because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And then the, the, the next illustration is an ear. So imagine the ear talking to the eye, and I can't do that, but you know, Ears like looking at the eye and saying, I'm not an eye, so I'm not a part of the body. Is it not for this reason any the less a part of the body? Imagine if the different parts of your body were looking at the other parts and saying, well, hey, I'm not like you. And usually it's in the sort of the framework of, well, I'm not as important as you, or I'm not as special as you. Therefore, I'm not part of the body. Now, how does that translate into church life? You might look at someone and think that you're a foot, and there's someone else's a hand. And you're like, oh, those hand people. You're so handy. You never hear anyone saying, I'm footy. They're so capable. They're so helpful. They do so many things. They serve. And all I'm good for is standing on. So you're comparing and you think then that you are a lesser part of the body. But then in verse 17, it says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? So following verse 16, if the ear is going, well, I'm not an eye. You know, the eye gets to see everything. The ear just collects wax. You know, I mean, I'm not really good compared to the eye. But imagine if the whole body were an eye. If the whole body were an eye, what else could it do? It couldn't hear. 
But what if the whole body were an ear? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? The nose gets thrown in here. I mean, I know that we have some folks at our church who don't have a good sense of smell. And sometimes that's a good thing, right? There's some things you don't want to smell. But then if you don't have a sense of smell, there are things that you can't really appreciate because it's connected also to, the, to your taste. You know, when I, um, when I just smell in and out there's a particular smell of in and out I just get happy. I'm so happy my nose works well. Where even if I don't go to In-N-Out, I enjoy the smell of it. It's kind of a big deal. I've shared before, when I lived in Maryland, there was no In-N-Out. And I had dreams that I was driving, looking for the In-N-Out, and I could smell it in my dream. I could smell the particular smell of in and out in my dream, but I couldn't find it. I woke up sad. Isn't it weird how your emotions get tied to your smell? But now God has appointed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So the whole point is, there's no body unless there are the members, the different members of the body. But it can't just be one member. There'd be no body. But now there are many members, but one body. Now, it takes it even further in verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, okay, so the eyes talking to the hand, I have no need of you. Now, practically thinking, if like, you get an eyelash, any of you ever get an eyelash go into your eye? You need your hand, right? You need to be able to kind of wiggle it out and get it out. Or if you're like me, you wear contacts and your the eyelash gets into the contact, and then it really bothers you, right? You got to take out your contact. If you didn't have a hand, how would you get the contact out? And again, the head to the feet. The head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, here's a sad thing. We might not say that to each other directly as a church family, but you could give this attitude where it comes across as, you know, I have no need of you. And that can come out in so many different ways. I have no need of you, so I don't even need to say hi to you. Or I have no need of you, I don't need to ask for help. Or I have no need of you, I don't even need to bother showing up because I have no need of you. You know, know, for some people, they might say, well, do you really have to go to a church service to say you go to church or that you're part of a church? Can't I just worship God on my own? Well, you actually are called to worship God on your own 24-7. But you're also called to be part of a corporate worship because you are part of the body of Christ. Verse 22, on the contrary, how much more is it than the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary? So here's another thought. The very people that you don't think are so important, that are so valuable, that you don't think that they're necessary, actually, they are necessary. Verse 23, and those members of the body which we think are less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Now, when we think about, say, our church, Lighthouse LA, you might say, well, hey, there are those who seem to be more honorable. Therefore, there are some who are less honorable. More important, less important. More significant, less less significant. We might not say it directly to someone, but that's how we measure people. But do you realize we are all necessary? And in fact, those that you might not think are so honorable, we actually should bestow more abundant honor. Because many of those, what we think are less presentable or honorable members, are very important to the life of the church. 
because they help the church function. Whereas our more presentable members have no such need, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Now, for those who are in those prominent roles and significant roles, they do receive honor. I mean, I could say that as a pastor. I am blessed. People, there are people who are kind and generous, who give. It's something that I'm already receiving. But then there are those who do not receive that honor. So God is the one who gives that abundant honor to them. Why? So that there would be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And what we really need to be driven to is this. As fellow members, do we care for one another? Like, Do you actually care? Or do you not care? You know, that's why coming to church is kind of a big deal. What it tells everyone else is at a very basic level, you care. You care to come for one another. In fact, when you find out that there is some member suffering, then you have the opportunity to suffer with them. There it says in verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You know what's the sad thing in this kind of scenario? When there are some people who are suffering, there are some people who really don't care. Like you hear someone sick. Oh, well, it's cold season, it's flu season, people get sick, whatever. But then there are some people who go, you know, because someone's sick, I want to serve them. I want to pray for them. I want to do something to let them know I care. Now, it's very easy for us to say, well, how come people don't do that? No, no, the more important question is, how about you? Do you care? And then when someone is honored, do you rejoice with them or instead do you get jealous or embittered? Or do you say, whatever, that's their life. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Or do you rejoice with them? Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You can't separate the fact that being an individual member of the body and then the fact that the body of Christ is composed of all the members, they need to go together. And that is really at the heart of why we gather together as a church body. Christ ultimately is what makes this all matter. In fact, when we think of church, it always starts and ends with Christ. And everything in between is about Christ. In fact, if I say I am a member of the body of Christ, it is because it is Christ that defines it all. But secondarily, what that means also is that it matters that I'm a part of his body and that I commit myself to functioning together with the body and living life together. That's really what fellowship is about. We have this fellowship because Christ is the one who defines this relationship. Now, some people say, well, am I not part of the universal church? Well, yes, you are. But when you read through the scriptures, especially the epistles, they were written to particular churches. And at the heart of these letters, it was, here is how Jesus wants you as a local body to conduct yourselves. In fact, there are specific references to even individuals in these letters. But it's always in the context of the corporateness of the church. You know, last year, as you had the chance to read through the New Testament, hopefully what you were able to see is that there are many commands 
and prescriptions in the Bible for churches to carry out in obedience. We also see descriptions like in the book of Acts that are helpful for perspective. Now, the funny thing is there there are some people who want to argue, do you really have to actually go to church? And we understand going to church is about, say, the activity. We are the church. You're always part of the church. But the idea of gathering together, is it really that important? It is. And it's important that each one of you see yourself as a vital part of carrying it out. You know, there's so many analogies in the New Testament, and they show a corporateness. For instance, it says, we are a temple made of many stones, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. We are a flock of sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd. We are a family. God is our father. We are a holy nation as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Christ is our king. We are many branches connected to the one vine. Now, you know, if you've gone to church for much of your life, you'll hear sermons like this and you're like, yeah, 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 I know, I know. But do you actually understand? And does it do something different for you? Or do you just go to church on Sunday, kind of like what Kara was sharing in testimony, is because, well, she had no choice, really. My daughters had no choice. They had to go to church because uh, their dad was a pastor. I never said to them, do you really want to go to church today, this Sunday? No. It's like, get in the car. We're late. I have to get my dinner. Hurry. I mean, every Sunday morning, kind of like, you know, hectic. Those are your parents, you totally understand, right? Starting from when they're babies, that's when they have their big explosions in the car seat. Just as you're about to leave, and you're like, again. You know, or, uh, you know, I hear stories of how parents, you know, your kid throws up in the back seat. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I remember those days, too. I remember, I don't know how many times I caught their vomit. Because I didn't want it to get on the carpet. But I'm just holding vomit, and I look at them and go... Only because you're my daughter. I would never do this for anyone else. Sundays were not easy. But I want to challenge you. Does it matter? Do Sundays matter? To the degree that you ask yourself Saturday night, am I looking forward to gathering with God's people? In fact, am I preparing myself, preparing my heart, preparing my mind, even preparing my clothes so that I would be ready to come? And not only that I would come, but that I would prayerfully have my heart prepared so that I would gather purposefully, not by default, not just because this is what I do, Now, the past few years have been challenging for churches all around the world because the pandemic forced churches to close. Now, the thing is, people are still affected by that. And what it did was it gave people basically this sort of mentality where, well, I guess I can't go to church. But then after we came out of that pandemic, and if you notice right now, people are doing all sorts of things, right? All sorts of activity. But there are still some churches that are not open. And it boggles my mind. You say, well, you need to be considerate of, you know, health issues. Sure, be considerate of the health issues. But does it mean we don't gather? I think it's more than just the circumstances. What the circumstances did is it revealed the, the, the posture of people's hearts. Kevin DeYoung says this, if you want to be much less a follower of Jesus Christ five years from now, make church marginal in your life. If you make church an afterthought, you won't be thinking about centering your life on Jesus five years from now. And I thought that was a keen observation. 
Five years ago from today, okay, so going back to like 2019, where was your heart for Christ? You might not have seen the effects then dramatically, but then with COVID, I think it exposed that there are a lot of people who don't really think church is important, that church is essential, that church is vital. It is now a preference. It is a convenience. The one thing that helps us get past all that thinking is to say, what defines the church? The church is defined by Jesus. In fact, the church is the one place where we unapologetically declare that what defines us and how we identify it's not about me. It's about Jesus. You know, we don't, you know, when people say, well, hey, Pastor John, is Lighthouse Church a, a Korean American church? Because they know I'm Korean. I'm like, no, because we don't have all Korean Americans here. Well, is your church Asian American? You go, well, I suppose if you walk in, you're going to see a lot of black hair. And you're going to see Asian features. But does it mean that the church is Asian American? No, it just means that there are a lot of Asian Americans. So what are you? We're a church. In fact, by asking those questions, are you making it more about whether you think it's going to fit what you need and want, or do you actually want Jesus? The only way to get past the vast diversity of ethnicities and cultures and how we can actually experience a true oneness, I mean, think about this. We all come together as part of this body here at Lighthouse LA. And who are we? We're all sinners. You know, isn't it interesting? Everyone likes to point out how everyone else is a sinner and what they do wrong, what they mess up in. And you go, well, but how about me? It's kind of like driving, right? Everyone in L.A. is a bad driver except me. That's what we say. No, no, we're bad drivers too. It's just that we think we're better. We bring all our human limitations, we bring even our self-centeredness, we bring our propensity to take our eyes off of Christ and still we gather, and it's messy, and there are conflicts and challenges and hardships. But here's the deal. Do you really believe that God says it's important that we gather? 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, and it's an interesting context. It says, it says Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I heard that divisions exist among you. Now, if you know Corinthians, you'll know that they had a lot of problems and they had divisions. People are getting drunk during communion. I mean, they, they had all sorts of problems. But for all their faults, they gathered. They still gathered. And Paul is trying to help correct all the things that are wrong in their gathering, but they still gathered. Why did they gather? It was because that's what the church did. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Acts 2.46 says, and daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, this idea of gathering or assembling or congregating, maybe we need to think a little bit more about why that's so important and why that should really be woven into the fabric of our lives. Now, uh, last week, Andy talked to you about uh, our Old Testament reading plan. 
All right, and I, I hope that you're excited about that. It's going to be daunting. Three plus years. And uh, I was thinking about this. Uh, if we could all do this together three plus years, uh, let's just go have a steak party and celebrate because it is very, it is not very often that any Christian can say they've read the Old Testament. I think it's a big deal, right? So the deal, let's go all get steak. Now, that's not the best motivation to read the Bible, but, you know, hey, anything to help. But as you read through the Old Testament, starting in the book of Exodus, and when the nation of Israel, they're in Egypt, Moses is told to go and lead them out. And there's a particular word that's used in reference to the nation of Israel. It's the phrase, the congregation. Exodus 12.40 says, and all the congregation of Israel shall celebrate this. Right? And God is telling Moses, you go talk to my people. But he describes them as a congregation. Now, they were not the church. okay? But there was this idea that there was a corporateness to them. You can see this almost like analogy or a shadow or a foreshadowing. The nation of Israel, they are always addressed in a corporate sense. In fact, the word congregation, is a, it's mentioned 102 times in the Pentateuch. And it's primarily addressing the nation of Israel as a corporate entity. The congregation was instructed, commanded, cautioned, warned. And so in some ways what you see is an example now jump over to Acts 4.32. And in the book of Acts, we see the word congregation used five times. Acts 4.32 says, from the beginning of the church age, it was clear. Okay, I'm sorry, that was my note. In, it, from the beginning of the church, it's clear that this corporate nature emphasized oneness. Acts 4.32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own, but for them, everything was common. So when the church, when the church age started, what they were defined by was one heart and soul. And that they said their possessions were not their own, but they would share because they would look at the rest of the church and trying to meet their needs. Acts 6, 2. It says, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. There's a problem with the widows. They needed to get food. And there was division between the Hebrew widows and the, the uh, Hellenistic widows. So the twelve apostles summon the congregation. And so in verse 5, it says, and this word pleased the whole congregation. And they, plural, third person plural, there's a corporateness. Acts 7.38, this is the one who in the congregation of the wilderness was with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. And that's a reference back to the nation of Israel. And it's pointing back to that to say, do you see what God's people what God did with them. Acts 15.30, it says, So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together. So what happened? There was the Jerusalem council. There were Judaizers who were twisting the gospel, at trying to add the Mosaic law and circumcision. So the council drew up a letter, and so Paul and, uh, and others took this letter, and they go to Antioch, and they get to the congregation in Antioch and they deliver this letter. Now, all that to say, there's a very clear sense that this corporate gathering of what we would say sets the pattern for church was always there. The same idea of the word assemble. You'll see that that word is used just as much in the history of Israel. Exodus 35.1, then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel. Psalm 47, 9 talks about assembling. 
in the context of worship, the nobles of the peoples have assembled themselves with the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The word assembly is often used in Psalms as a context for corporate worship. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two says, I will surely recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-five: of you is my praise in the great assembly. Psalm 35, 18, I'll give you thanks in the great assembly. Psalm 40, verse 9, I proclaim good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Now, there, there are a bunch of other verses, but that word assemble or assembly, that family, there's something about it being very present. 1 Corinthians 5, 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, 1 Corinthians 14.23, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together. Now, the reason I bring all that up is what you see in the Old Testament is this pattern or practice, practice where it was so woven into their life to gather together to do what God called them to do. And so, in fact, when they, get, when they celebrated the Sabbath, I don't know if any of you have seen the the, the old musical Fiddler on the Roof. And every Friday, from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, that's considered the Sabbath. And every Jewish family would put on their Sabbath clothes. They'd have the Sabbath meal. They'd have the Sabbath candles. So everybody did that. All the families were defined by that. And then they recited the Old Testament. As families, they were defined by what God called them to do. And then they would gather together as a congregation during the Sabbath. It was so much a part of their lives. Now, I'm sure back then, there are probably people who are like, oh man, it's Sabbath again. Well, we got to get the challah bread again. Oh, we got to eat the same food. I'm sure there were attitudes that didn't really appreciate the intent and the meaning of it. But what we see in the nation of Israel is this whole lifestyle that is defined by a corporate identification with God. So when we assemble as the church, we're not the nation of Israel. God has a particular plan, and just in case anyone's confused about that. In Hebrews 10.25, it says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Uh, I'll be very, um, uh, I guess, direct about this. Uh, Andy and I, we've been talking and planning for church things, you know, pastorally, and we, we are looking at the attendance records and this is just for the members. We do take role. And uh, the last several years, we saw a very sort of steady downward trend. Now, um, we told some of our leaders, uh, small group leaders, so forth, that there was an, at last, this past year, that there was an average of 67% attendance by the members. And that was actually a mistake. That was a particular Sunday. But uh, that generally speaking, for the last three years, there's been a downward trend hovering around 75%. In other words, on any given Sunday, uh, we have about 70 members. The average attendance is about 52. Now, I don't bring those numbers uh, or emphasize the percentage just because uh, I want to impose some guilt trip. I just want you to think about the reality of it. If basically on any given Sunday, three out of four members are not here, how do we function? If only three out of the four members of a body or a team are here, how do you compete? The bigger issue is not just that you show up. It's that do you see that you are a vital part of the body and we need you to be here. I'm not advocating for a legalistic mandating. I'm not saying there are legitimate reasons that you might miss church 
There are some people missing church today because they're sick. That's reasonable. But I think there's something about how these days people view Sunday corporate worship. It's not so significant or vital or important that it defines how I look at the regular pattern of my life. Now you might think like, oh, Pastor John just wants us to live at the church. I have never asked anyone to live at the church. I mean, where would you live? We don't even own this property. I understand what people are trying to say. You're like, oh man, you're saying I got to do church stuff 24 7 No, I never said that either. You know, it's funny the things I've heard over the years. You know, Pastor John just wants us to quit our jobs, quit school, and just do church. I have never said that. Never, 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 ever. It's recorded again right now. Okay, go listen to it on the video, okay? Just remember, I never said that. But what I want to ask you is this. When you came to Jesus Christ and said, I recognize I am a sinner destined for hell and condemnation. And Jesus, you are the only one who can save me from hell and condemnation. So I place my faith in you and I will follow you. Because isn't that what Jesus said? If you want to come after me, Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. Do you see Sunday as just a have-to thing? Like, I have to go to church. Or as my girls would often say, no, you get to. It makes a difference, actually. This morning, did you wake up and say, ah, I have to go to church. It's the first Sunday of the year. If I don't show up, it's going to look bad. Is that the motivation? Or is it, I get to? Now, all of that was introduction. Okay, I don't know if the outline's up there. Okay, uh, the first point is Sunday is an opportunity for. Uh, I'm going to tell you a few, but we're going to continue next week. But I wanted to give you that sort of setup because I want you to see that Sunday actually really is an opportunity. It's a wonderful opportunity to experience so many good things. First, it's an opportunity for the corporate submission of the body to the sovereignty of God. It's where we come together and say, we together submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God defining our lives. You know, our job does not define us. Our season of life does not define us. Your marital status doesn't define you. As a Christian, God defines you. And he brings us all together from all the various seasons of life, from all the various you know, stages of life. And all. We're not all the same. But that's not the point. The point is there's something that unites us, and it's God. And it's the fact that together we say, we are not in charge. He is in charge. And we do that together. We say, God, we submit ourselves to you together. We share in that. And you know why that makes a difference? Because it brings us all at the same level. We're here simply as God's servants, God's slaves. Sunday is also an opportunity for corporate sanctification. It's not just that you grow alone, you should, but it's that you grow together. You come together and grow. How do we do that? Well, we learn, we hear God's word, and then we share that, and then we encourage each other in that. Sunday is also a corporate celebration of salvation. And that's why I love the testimonies. I mean, 
you know, I, I don't want to be partial, but of course when I hear my daughter share her testimony, like I said, that that's what she brings, and then we get to celebrate that. But all the other testimonies have been the same. Do you see that when someone comes to share their testimony, that there is a corporate celebration of the work of salvation in people's lives? That also is a testimony to unbelievers. So that they would see, you know what makes church church? It's not because we're some special group of people. It's not because we think we're better than anyone. It's just that we celebrate God saving sinners. And I'm one of them. And it's God who did the saving. Sunday is also a corporate celebration of milestones. You know, in the history of Israel, they would often set up memorial altars. And the point of setting up a memorial altar was so that they would remember that they would be reminded of what God had done. In March, uh, we will celebrate our 10-year anniversary, and uh, we're working on that right now. And it's going to be a really wonderful celebration. Uh, But I, I just wonder, you know, but do you really see it as a celebration? Or, well, hey, at least they'll give free dinner. Well, sure, there's a free dinner. But I hope it's more than just about the dinner. It's about celebrating what God has been doing. We also come together as an opportunity to support one another, especially through times of hardship. Everyone goes through hardships. You're not the only one. I'm not the only one. But we have an opportunity to come alongside and care for one another. Now, I have a whole list of others. Like I said, we'll continue next week. But I do want to leave that thought in your mind. There is a um, devotional, and I sent an email about it. And... uh, Uh, That's why the theme is not original. I just took it from this book. Sunday Matters by Paul Tripps, a 52 devotional book. And for each devotion, uh, he gives uh, kind of a little quip. And uh, I want to share the first one with you. He writes, Corporate worship is designed to remind you again and again that the most valuable thing in your life you could have, never earned or deserved, it was and is a gift of divine grace. We come together to be reminded that we are recipients of grace. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve it. You want to talk about getting earned or deserved stuff? Uh, That's called hell and condemnation. That's what we earn and deserve. But what instead we've been given is grace. That's why we come together to remind each other. We all are recipients of grace. I ask you to bow your heads as we prepare for communion.